Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good day, Vicky. Hi, Sabria. Thank you so much for joining me. We've got a, a few things to get through. NDP convention happened a couple weeks ago. You also, of course, ventured out onto the hill to talk to you, uh, young women that work there and talk about their experiences a little bit. Yeah, I went out to Ottawa to talk to some women and give some context to all these ideas we're hearing about gender and working politics. Um, and we've also got a call from a listener about our recent episode on the Senate. And spoiler alert, it's not just a regular listener. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm Spree Devetti. I'm Vicky Mochama, and this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is supported by Audible.com. If you go to audibletrial.com slash Canadaland right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Now, Vicky, I've recently said on this show that I don't necessarily read a lot, only because people tend to read on the streetcar and on the subway and I get nauseous doing it. So Audible is amazing for me. Yeah, I love Audible. I walk a lot downtown and so it's great for just walking around but also ignoring the city and learning a lot. I'm currently reading, listening to this great book called SPQR by the author Mary Beard and it's a history of Rome basically. And if you're a politics nerd, and I am a nerd, don't judge me. I was just going to yell out nerd, so I'm glad you, <laughs> you, you, you know. Yeah, if you're a dork for this sort of thing and you want to know the roots of why our politics is sometimes the way it is, this is a great book. So go to audibletrial.com slash right now for a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash So, Vicky, some interesting stuff went down a couple of weekends ago where the NDP had their convention. Yes, and I don't really understand it, so I'm hoping you can explain this to me. Well, I'm going to give you the gist version, uh, the Cliff's Notes version, the Supriya's Notes versions, uh, which is essentially that, you know, they had a convention to debate all sorts of policy and, you know, they had different factions of the party come together and discuss what going forward they wanted the party to look like. But ultimately, the main sideshow, I guess, of this was whether Tom Mulcair was going to stay on or not as leader. 
And there's a lot of chatter, a lot of fodder about whether or not he was going to stay, whether he was going to go. What would have been the case for keeping him? Because I left the election thinking he had to go. That was generally the view, I think, from a, a lot of people. But to be fair, the NDP does not have a history of cannibalizing their leaders in the same way that the liberals and the conservatives do. So a lot of people were, were saying, you know, he may have stayed on. Anyway, ultimately, I, I missed the punchline right there. He did not, in fact, stay on. He was voted out. So the NDP now are going to have to go through a leadership contest, much in the same way that the conservatives are. So essentially, our opposition, both parties are more or less decapitated, which I think kind of sucks, to be honest, because no matter what your political leaning should be, you need strong opposition parties in the House to hold the current government to account. So are we in a position where the opposition is leaderless and so there really isn't a functional opposition? No, no, no. I'm, I'm exaggerating here, obviously, by saying they're decapitated. The Conservatives, of course, have interim leader, Ronna Ambrose, and Tom Mulcair will stay on for now until they figure out who will fill his shoes. But, you know, leadership contests are always really interesting. It's really interesting to me to see different factions of, you know, the traditional socialist caucus of the NDP party versus the more... I say pragmatic. There are lots of different ways to put it, but the more pragmatic side of the NDP, which is looking to form government eventually and would like for the party to move to the center. So when you have that sort of infighting, it's just like, you know, all the family's dirty laundry gets aired out and I love watching it. What was the family's dirty laundry? What was the fighting about? The basic criticism of the NDP campaign and of Tom Melcare generally was that he swung way too far to the center. And in trying to appeal to the broad middle, he lost a lot of that base um, that would show up and, and, and turn out to vote NDP. And with the liberals proposing arguably a left of center platform during the campaign, they were essentially outflanked by the liberals, which I don't think that they want for years to come. So what does this mean for the NDP if the liberals are outflanking them on the left and they're moving further to the center? What do they even mean anymore? I think that's a, a really existential, introspective question that the uh, NDP need to ask themselves is what is their point? Do they want to be the conscience of the House of Commons and they want to be a, a protest party? So when people are pissed at the other parties, they vote for them. Or do they, in fact, want to form government? Because I don't know if you can be all things to all people all the time. But let me ask you something, Vicky. If, as you say, the liberals are increasingly proposing left-leaning policies, what do you think the NDP needs to do? Like, why don't you solve the NDP problem for us right now? How's that? First, put me in charge. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I think if I were to solve the NDP problem, I would embrace their socialist leanings. I think more and more people are coming to that kind of politics. Are they, though? See, that's the thing. I hear that all the time. And people are saying, oh, well, well, Bernie Sanders' success in the U.S., and they point to that, or they'll point to Corbyn out in the U.K. But, like, isn't Canada fundamentally a centrist country, and we tend to lean slightly left or slightly right, depending on our mood? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think we're always a millimeter off-center, and I think people are looking for a party that's maybe a centimeter off-center, and the NDP can be that. Centimeter to the left. <laughs> Aspiring youth everywhere. <laughs> so what did you do? You went to Parliament Hill and you sought out some ladies. Yeah, I went to Parliament Hill and I spoke to young women working on the Hill under 30 just to get an idea of what they do. Staffers are in the civil service as well. 
staffers. Right. Yes. Okay. So they work for MPs, but then I also spoke to people who weren't currently staffers or had been before. Mm-hmm. And people who worked in that area where they work to serve staffers or MPs. And so we always hear that in male-dominated fields, it's often tough for women to sort of make gains or they face a lot of internal sexism behind closed doors or what have you. Was that some of your motivation in talking to these women on the Hill? Yeah, that was my motivation to understand for women working now why they do the work that they do, considering it is such a male-dominated field. And... You don't never hear much positive stuff about what it's like for women working in politics. It's always the negatives of being judged on how they look or the environment of being heckled by the men that they work with. And so I wanted to understand what motivated them. So what is it like for them in those spaces? Let's get into that. So one thing that's big for them is the physical space and how part of that is gendered. And one of the people I spoke to can really speak to that. This is Kirsten Strom speaking about what it's like to navigate that space and when it's very gendered. She works for the Minister for the Status of Women and is her assistant on the Hill. It's pretty obvious that the buildings themselves and the job was built for men, even just when it comes down to trying to find a woman's bathroom in center block sometimes. And it's like at the end of the hallway when the men's bathroom is right next to the committee room that you're in. It's just little reminders all the time, kind of, that your space wasn't necessarily built for you to be in it. That's really interesting to me because, of course, one of those buildings constructed. I believe the a fuck of a long time ago. Let's just yeah, that's the like, official. Oh, a century over a century ago. Like that is the official timeline, I think. Yeah. So I mean, back then, of course, the, you know, it, it would be a predominantly male space, but it's surprising to me that they wouldn't have updated things like center block and have women's bathrooms closer to where women are actually doing work and legislating and doing all that good parliamentary stuff that we, you know, as taxpayers, pay them to do. Yeah. So the thing that's important to note about that is that a lot of the actual work of parliament and a lot of the people you'll see around are women because a lot of them are assistants or administrators in some capacity and so the idea that they're unable to find a bathroom or they struggle to find a place that serves them on a daily working basis is how a space becomes gendered and becomes not welcoming for women to work. You know, and corollary to this also is uh, in Alberta, there's an MLA out there who recently had a baby and it was really interesting that the entire framework that they have in place had never foreseen a possibility that a sitting legislator would ever, of course, become pregnant because men don't become pregnant and they never really foresaw that women would be equal members of that society. So do you find that in your experience and talking to women, there is still very much, you know, little rules like that kind of poke at them every day? That's definitely something in speaking to the women that they found that they could see how a space definitely how working on the Hill was not for them and wasn't built or designed for them. But they were very much interested in challenging that. And that's why some of them do the work that they do is to make sure that there's space for women in politics and on the Hill. I'm speaking to Marianne Carter. She's a co-chair for Equal Voice Canada. She spoke to the ways that they advocate for Parliament Hill to accommodate for women. Our system is so old and kind of based around old norms that we haven't explored new options on how we can be more 
open to supporting young women and young families. So for example, the concept of having less sitting days in the house would be something to explore further. What about teleconferencing or using Skype or those sorts of systems that businesses actively use? So the house is really behind in a lot of ways. You know, we just got another woman's bathroom put in a couple of decades ago and, you know, change tables and that sort of thing. So I think structurally, the way the system has been designed has been difficult for young women to navigate. But now that we're seeing more young women involved in politics, I hope we continue to have those debates and seeing positive change. Another barrier is the whole idea of having a work-life balance. It's a really busy job. A lot of the people I spoke to, they were working minimum 12-hour days. So they start at 8 a.m. and they finish at 8 p.m. And as a young woman, at what point do you form a social life? At what point do you have a healthy working practice that you can carry into the future? You can do that for a short time. But once you start to have a family, what does that really look like? And so I spoke to Jill White, who works for the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and she spoke to how working in politics has affected her work-life balance. I think I just, in general, have a real appreciation for women, especially women who are maybe a little older than me, who are finding ways of balancing the attempt to have it all. They have children. They're very successful in their lives. They don't seem frazzled all the time. As a young staffer, I still feel very frazzled a lot of the times figuring out how things work. So just seeing women who have an understanding that it can be balanced even if it is hard and it's still a thing to strive for. When you're starting to hear all of these narratives of women who are saying you can't have it all and it's not possible anymore, you just have to redefine what that is. It's interesting that young women are seeing more role models who for them say you can do it, there are ways to do it, there are ways to have some version of this life. So do you encounter any differences in opinion in terms of having a female boss versus a male boss? There's definitely differences and I think Kirsten Strom spoke really well to that. Specifically working for a woman in politics has been really nice just for those moments where you kind of have those cringeworthy moments. Uh, Someone says something inappropriate to you or someone says something inappropriate to one of your colleagues. You can discuss it with your boss, laugh about it, talk about what you might want to do to change it instead of like trying to have to awkwardly approach them and explain why that's weird or why that made you uncomfortable. She's already there with you talking about that and what you can do to change it. That's interesting because I feel like that could have gone the complete opposite way where, you know, you kind of get into that hazing mentality that like, well, I went through it. So then you also have to go through it, too. You know what I mean? But so it's interesting to me that and it's good and it's comforting to know that at least female bosses on the Hill tend to be a little bit more understanding and get it and are trying to help the next generation up instead of being like, well, it was awkward for me, so it should be awkward for you. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some element of that somewhere in other corners of the Hill for other staffers who work for women. Obviously, not all women have the same approaches to everything, but just to have that moment where someone recognizes that an issue is true is really important, especially when you're young and working on the Hill and trying to make sure that your work is important and valid to make sure that your views are seen as valid as well. So, Vicky, I got a question for you. Chivalry, we often hear, is dead. Now, I don't mind somebody opening a door for me now and again, and whether it's a man or a woman to do it, but I wonder if that sort of old guard chivalry still exists on the Hill. I think it definitely does. I really loved what Jill had to say about this. 
I think that there are aspects of the Hill that still feel very traditional in some ways. I've had a few female staffers comment about how like some days you can't walk through the building and open your own door. Men will make a very clear precedent to be sure that you go for before them, things like that. And it's a way of almost paying homage to the fact that it is this traditional place in niceties. But I feel as a working woman in in parliament that it doesn't really change anything for me in the way that I operate as a female to say that somebody takes my opinion differently than they would a a male counterpart or anything like that. So that sounds good to me. You get the door open, but then your opinion is still validated. Yeah, I think there are things that are worth keeping. The one thing that I really loved, I got to visit a cabinet member's office and because it's designed for gentlemen in the 1800s, they still have giant dressing rooms. So if someone had told me that you get a giant bathroom and a giant dressing room, I would have not taken as many questionable pictures on Facebook. I would be (laughs) running for office. I would try to be a cabinet member. And so there are things that are worth keeping about the space that are traditional. Democracy, period, is a traditional institution. So, Vicky, we heard at the wrap up of, uh, you know, the election when Trudeau won and introduced his cabinet, of course, the now very infamous soundbite of him saying it's 2015 that's why he wanted a gender uh, equal cabinet and so forth and we do have you know he's a self-proclaimed feminist and all that jazz so are we going in the right direction are things getting better for women are things looking up yes things are looking up but that doesn't mean the criticisms aren't any less valid people's criticisms that women in the cabinet were given softer positions where they were given less power than their male counterparts in cabinet is valid. And you see that in how people feel about working on the Hill as young women, which is that they're not necessarily in positions of power. I spoke to a former conservative staffer who was really concerned about women being tokens and being used as administrators rather than power brokers. Do you feel that overall parliament is an inviting place for young women to work? No, I don't think so. And definitely not for the roles that increase your power and influence. There's tons of women at the administrative level, but you don't see it as it gets higher up. And it also becomes like women in very token positions. There is diversity on the Hill, but sometimes it I feel like is for appearances only. And uh, it doesn't always translate to policy and the positions getting filled in the way that I would most like to see. That's a criticism we hear quite a bit, actually, even at the ministerial level in terms of who's getting what cabinet positions, right? So women traditionally, they call them like pink spots. So you just put them in tradition, like obviously status for the Minister of Women um, and other less hard policy making positions such as, you know, foreign affairs, defense, finance, trade. So that even filters down then, I guess, to the staffer level, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I even attended a couple committees. And in the committee rooms, there were very few young women. But when you went back to the offices, there were lots of women running around doing the administrative work of making sure that their MPs or senators were being served. But in the physical rooms where decisions are being made and conversations are being had, they're simply not there. And that's, I think, problematic all the way down and all the way back up to the prime minister's office. So, Vicky, as you know, here on Canada Land Commons, we uh, encourage listener feedback. So, you know, sometimes we get listeners every now and again who uh, have lots to say, so they'll call us and tell us. So we have one listener um, whose name is James Cowan. He's from Nova Scotia, and he's the leader of the Senate Liberals. 
So there are senators who are part of the Liberal Caucus before Justin Trudeau booted them out. And so they're no longer liberal senators, but they call themselves Senate liberals. But anyway, since then, they've continued to work together as a group. And he heard our recent episode with uh, Senator Diane Balmar about a group of independent senators that are banding together. And if you recall the episode, they said they would all vote their conscience and they're not you know, necessarily politically aligned and that this group would help them form somewhat of a haphazard coalition of sorts. So Senator Cowan wanted to make a case why operating in a partisan group with like-minded senators as the Senate liberals is still, in fact, still valuable. So what did he actually think about Dan Belmar's working group? You know what? That's an excellent question. And I asked him. Here's what he said. I, I think their primary focus is changing the rules of the Senate rather than uh, public policy issues. And they may find that they don't share common views on public policy issues, but that will remain to be seen. But what she's doing is perfectly legitimate, but we're, we're just as independent as they are. So what does he actually mean when he says that his group is independent as theirs? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a million dollar question right there. I mean, that's something that came up repeatedly during our conversation. He started by telling us about the day he found out that him and his working group were no longer part of the Liberal Caucus. There was no prior consultation. It came as a surprise to us, but we met and we a decided. A good surprise or a bad surprise? People were were very surprised and and sort of didn't quite know how to react to it. And we got together that day and said, "Well, what do we do now?" The question is not. Should we continue to be members of the National Caucus of the Party or should we be independent? The, you know, the leaders made that decision. He's entitled to make that decision. What do we do now? And what we decided then was that, all right, we are now independent. Do we still want to, to sit together to work together? And we concluded then that we did. We're still liberals in the sense that we're members of the Liberal Party of Canada, but we are completely independent of the leader of the party, of the of of our colleagues in the House of Commons who belong to the National Liberal Caucus, but we continue to meet as independent liberals because we share the same values. We enjoy working together and we think that we can be more effective working as a group than we can as individuals. As you know, we have all our votes are free. Uh, everybody votes the way they, they want to, but we work together. So I just have a question about that. The idea of being independent and liberal and working together and how that actually works in practice. This would be my stab at it, to paraphrase a lot of what he said, but I think the gist is everybody's allowed to vote their conscience, but they're all sort of held together by these common, either small L or big L liberal values. So they, they're just a bunch of like-minded individuals that aren't necessarily under this partisan banner, but because they are liberals, they do have liberal hats to put on sometimes in terms of their public policy goals, they end up working together so I asked him about something that happened, which suggested that they're not always as free as the claim seems to be. Senator, during the expense scandal, you sent out an email, which the CBC subsequently got their hands on, telling other members of your group it would be unwise to take a position and that it is critical that we speak with one voice and with one message. Now, that to me, on the face of it, sounds like a whipped message. H how is that different in your view? No, I think that that was taken out of context. You remember at that time, aspects of that report were leaked out to the public before anybody had had a chance to see it. And I was simply saying, look, let's look at the report. We don't have to react to the report as an institution. Each individual's senator who was named in it obviously had to react to their own personal situation, as I did in my case. But I think from an institutional point of view, 
the Auditor General has provided us with a lot of valuable advice, and we've been working as an institution very hard over the last year to make sure that we provide an appropriate response, that we do make changes in our practices and procedures to make the Senate more open, transparent, and accountable. But my only point there was simply let's not the day after or indeed the day before the report comes public, start providing institutional reaction. The Auditor General took a long time to prepare his report, and there's no need for senators or for the Senate to respond in 24 hours saying, this is what we're going to do about that. But did we you not give the senators, the, uh, the members of, of your caucus, um, talking points? No, 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 I didn't. No, I was just saying, look, if you are named... Uh, if people ask you about your own experience, about your own practices, obviously you're the one that's going to have to deal with that, and you should do that. But until we've had a chance to properly, as an institution, properly assess the practices of the Senate and the procedures of the Senate, it would be unwise to be commenting. So I think it was a, uh, it, it was the right thing to do, and, and I think that the Senate has, uh, has responded and senators have responded appropriately. Now, according to the CBC story, he did, in fact, promise to send talking points, but he claims it was taken out of context. Uh, I haven't seen the email myself. I've just seen the article, so I will take the senator at his word. But, you know, just from the face of it, to me, even if you are going to send out talking points as an independent working group, from a comms perspective, that actually doesn't seem so terrible to me because you need your message to be on point, even if you are just a, a ragtag bunch of misfits who happen to sit together. You still need to have a common message. So Senator Cowan talked a lot about the idea of partisanship, but at the end of our conversation, he said something that really stood out to me. I come from a part of the country where politics is taken seriously, but it's not personal. I don't believe in attacking other, other what people personally. What part of the country personally. is that, sir? I come I'd from love Nova to know Scotia. where it is. I come from Nova Scotia. I'm from Quebec. Everything tends to be political and personal, more or less. Certainly one of the things I've found since I came to Ottawa, I don't know whether it's particularly due to the hyper-partisanship of the previous uh, Harper government, but I have found that politics here is much more personal than I'm used to. And I've been involved in politics for a long time at home, and, and I have fought hard political campaigns against many good friends of mine, but we remain friends because we don't take it personally. And we can have spirited discussions about approaches and about policies and about politics, but we never take it personally. And I think there's a difference, and I hope that we're going to change that. So you don't actually have to be a senator to react to something you hear on our show. If you have something to say, send an email to our producer, Kevin. That's Kevin at CanadaLandShow.com. So, Vicky, that's our show this week. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Canada Land Commons. Big ups to our producer this week, Kevin Sexton. And that great music you heard was by Nathan Burley. If you want to read more and find out more about our podcast, go to CanadaLandShow.com. If you want to get at Vicky, you can email her at Vicky at CanadaLandShow.com. You can, of course, also read the newsletter, Not Sorry. And you can tweet me at Supreetavetti. If you like the show, support us. Go to Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of Shortcuts is out on Thursday, and the next episode of Commons is out next Tuesday. That's it for us. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. 
and Rita Moreno couldn't land a roll of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.